if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13 today. Uh, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of this, this glorious book, of this glorious chapter. But before we do that, I want to do a quick overview of what this book is about so we can get these verses in context. Uh, we know that this was probably a sermon. It was a word of exhortation. And the congregation, that the, the writer, we don't know who this writer is, but he's probably preaching this to a Jewish congregation. And this Jewish congregation, they, had, they were going through trials. They were, they were suffering for the name of Christ. And many of them were thinking of going back to the Old Covenant, back to temple worship. And he's writing this book saying that is folly. To return to the Old Covenant is folly. And in this, he shows that Jesus is superior to all of the Old Testament, that he is the fulfillment. So if you can look at chapter 1, we're just going to briefly go through some of these uh, main parts of this, this book. He starts off by saying Jesus is superior to the angels. In chapter 1, starting in verse 3, he writes, And he, the Son, is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, made, when, he, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So this son is superior to the angels. In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was, was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, being just so much as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. Jesus is superior to Moses. Why return? We see that he is the great high priest, the best high priest. None is like him. Chapter 4 starting in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We have a high priest who is sinless. He is superior. Look over in chapter 7. He says more about this high priest, starting in verse 26. For it was fitting to us to have such a high priest. And listen to the language he says about this high priest. He's holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Why would we return to lesser high priests? Why would we return to priests that have to offer up sacrifices for their own sin? That were not separated from sinners. That were sinners themselves. No, Jesus is superior and return to temple worship is folly. And he ministers, he is the mediator, the high priest of a better covenant. Chapter 8 and verse 6. He writes, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much he is, as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, 
which has been enacted on better promises. All right, he is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He is a greater high priest, and he enacts a better covenant. And he offers a better sacrifice in a better temple. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Why would they return a better sacrifice, a better temple from a better priest? And because of the ministry of Jesus, they and we can have confidence. We can have confidence in chapter 10. Starting in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. A better priest, a better sacrifice, a better temple gives us confidence. But this congregation, just like us, they live in a, a fallen world, and trouble happens. And we cannot be surprised about that. Just because we have confidence, it doesn't mean God has promised us an easy life. And in chapter 10, verse 32, he reminds them of the troubles that they have been having. He says, but remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Trouble happens. We cannot be surprised. But we have confidence that God is with us because of the work of Jesus. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over. Don't return. Don't go back to the lesser. You have the greater in Christ. Endure. That is what we're called to do. And in, ver in chapter 11, we see these Old Testament saints. What does it look like to have faith during great times of blessing and victory? and also in times of great suffering where there's a loss of life and torture. Both of these, we, we see examples of, of, of faithfulness during both. And so chapter 12 comes, and he says, because of all of these great truths, we are to run the race with endurance. We are to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And we are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as an example. To run with humility, to run with endurance, to run with purpose. And that brings us to chapter 13, where we are today. And in this chapter, he gets very practical on how we are to live. What does it look like for Christ's church to live faithfully in Cincinnati? And I think these first... 14 verses help. So if you would, I'm going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 13. And why don't we go ahead and stand one more time in the honor of God's word. Let love of the brethren continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought onto the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp, outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Father, I thank you for your words, and I pray that as we look at these few verses, that your spirit would be with us, that you would convict us where we need convicted, that you would comfort us where we need comforted, and that we would walk out of here ready to serve you. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in this chapter, I think it gives us some very practical ways in which we can live out this glorious faith that we have that we can live in light of the fact that we have this great high priest that the book of Hebrews talks about. And in the first three verses, he says that we're to love the brethren. And he gives us different examples on how we can do that. But loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is something that we see over and over in the scriptures. Loving the brethren is an exhortation that, that we see all throughout the Bible. Jesus says this in John 13. He says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. If we are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will love one another. And we have to find ways that we can actually express that to others. Paul says this in chapter 13 of Romans. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need to anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. When something is repeated as often as this, we need to take notice of this. We need to make sure that loving each other is something that Christ's church desperately tries to do. You will not be a church that honors God if you do not love one another. And in verses 2 and 3, he gives us a couple of concrete, practical ways in which we can love each other. In verse 2, we're, we're told to show hospitality to strangers. And in chapter three, we're, or verse 3, we're told to remember those who are in prison. So we're to be people that show hospitality to one another. 
particularly to strangers. Um, Hospitality is the duty of God's people, and he commands us to do this. In Isaiah 58, talking about a fast that he accepts, he writes, Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. We are to find practical ways in which we can love each other, particularly those in need. First Peter says the same thing. Be hospitable to one another. And then he says, without complaint. Okay, I can't, I can't say, okay, Paul really needs something. He needs me to show him love. But man, every time I talk to him, he drives me crazy. It's just, I just, it's too much work. I don't want, no. No, without grumbling. Just as we're to be cheerful givers, right, we are to be people that show love in different ways cheerfully. Because God has loved us. We don't grumble when we do it. And it demonstrates the fact that we're actually disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in Matthew 25 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and then you invited me in. By showing hospitality, we demonstrate to this fallen world that we are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we live a different way, not just seeking out what's best for us, but seeking out what's best for others. And hospitality, it crosses social boundaries, all right? Ethnic boundaries, it, it, social economic boundaries. All right? James is very clear about this in James chapter 2. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? The gospel tears down those divisions. Just as it tears down the division between Jew and Gentile, it tears down the divisions of ethnicity and socioeconomic divisions. We are to demonstrate love to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. So we're to love the brethren by showing hospitality, particularly to strangers. And the illusion of entertaining angels here, I think, is, is pointing us to Abraham in Genesis, where he, he, uh, he had angels stay with him, and he offered food and rest. We are to be like Abraham here. We're to be hospitable and, and generous with what God has given us. And we're also to remember those in prison. In one sense, we need to do this for all people in prison. It is important that we remember that they need to hear the gospel. I've got a dear friend of mine who's, who's a pastor now, but that's how he came to Christ. After a night doing things that he shouldn't have been, he ended up in prison, and somebody came and they preached the gospel, and they did a really poor job of it. But God used that and converted him, and he is, he's preaching right now to, to, to many people. And so we need to remember those in prison. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 25 as well. He rejected those that did not come and visit him in prison. We need to remember to ways, think of ways to demonstrate love to these people. However, when we read this passage in context, I think he's talking about those who are in prison for their faith. We have to remember 
of this congregation. They'd had their, their property taken. They'd been thrown into prison. And so those that are suffering for their faith, we need to remember them. And Christians are being persecuted all over the world. And why should we remember that? The end of verse 3. Since you yourselves are also in the body, they are part of us. And those that are suffering because of their faith, how dare we forget them? Remember, the Bible says if one part of the body is hurting, all of the body is hurting. So we remember those in prison. So the writer is telling us to love one another. And he's not giving us a, an exhaustive list, but just a few concrete ways in which we can love each other. Our job is to apply those scriptures to our lives. What does it mean for me to love somebody? What does it mean for me to, to be faithful to God in this aspect? For some of you, it's going to mean you're going to open your home to somebody. You're going to share some of your resources with somebody. For others, it's, it's going to mean I'm going to be on the lookout for someone that I can come alongside and buoy them up. I don't know what God's going to call, call you to but you need to be open in every circumstance. How can I show love to this person? How can I be generous to this person? It demonstrates the fact that you have, that you have been born again. It demonstrates the fact that you are a disciple of our Lord Jesus. In verse 4, the writer also tells us that we must honor marriage. If we, let's look at that. Verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. All right, it's nothing new for me to stand up here and say that the biblical concept of marriage is being challenged today. All right, we know that. That is old news. All right, it, they want to redefine what it means. Others are saying it's not important at all. It's just a piece of paper that the government issues out, and it's to their own destruction that they feel this way. We have to lift up marriage how God lifts up marriage. We have to understand that it is important to God, and we have to fight for our marriages. We understand that we have an enemy that is like a prowling lion, and he would like nothing more than to tear the marriages of the church down. So we have to be willing to fight. Right, one way that the church is struggling, one way that, the, that marriages are being torn down is through pornography. This is something that is destroying lives and destroying marriages. And I think that any church that is afraid to talk about this, that's, that's wanting to push it into the corner, they cannot honor marriage. So we have to be willing to open up. We have to be willing to confess our sins to each other, to walk with each other as they struggle through something like this. All right, if you will not confess it, it will devour you. I want you to look at Proverbs, or sorry, Proverbs 5, if you have a Bible. Um, I, want, I want you to see this progressive destruction that the Bible talks about when we give in to lust, whether in flesh or on a screen. The writer of Proverbs says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may deserve, observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and are smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. 
Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others, and your years to a cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien, and, and you groan at, the, at your final end. When your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, Have I hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof? I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to your instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. We see this progressive destruction. When we give ourselves over to lust, over and over, it begins to utterly destroy us. So the foolish person does not heed the warning here, but is enticed by the sinister appeal of the adulterous woman. We learn that she is dangerous, and she does not ponder the way of life. So she's unstable and dangerous. It will destroy you if you give in. But if you continue reading in in Proverbs 5, we see that we have hope in a better way. He says, drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? So instead of letting our marriages suffer because of a wandering eye, we need to honor our marriages and keep our marriage bed undefiled. Why? The end of verse 13, 4. God, for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So we need to keep our eyes pure. We need to make sure that we're not turning towards the adulterous woman. And if we're going to honor marriage, men, you must lead your family. You must. You must understand your responsibility. Repent of your complacency and move forward. And as a church, you need to be the kind of, needs to be in an environment where people are willing to confess their sins. People are open enough that you're going to love them enough that they can come up and confess. You might have to beat them over the head, but you do it in a loving way. So we have to honor our marriages. And in Hebrews chapter 13, we're also told to be free from the love of money. In fact, we are to be content with what we have, which is so very difficult. But I want you to think of it. As this writer is writing this, these people are in a time of persecution. They, 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 most believers are coming from the underclass. They've had what they, their possessions taken away, and the writer still had to warn them, don't fall in love with things. All right, that is profound. How much more should we, who lives in the most materially blessed nation in history, how much more do we need to hear this? All right, I live in a poor neighborhood, yet everybody has air conditioning, everybody has cable, everybody, nobody goes without. All right, our country needs to hear more than anybody. Do not love money. Be content with what you have. 
So we have to hear that. And why should we not love money? Because we have God's gracious promises. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So our Father has promised us his presence and his care. And if we really believe these promises, I mean really believe them, then the, the allure of this world would lose, lose its appeal. We wouldn't desire things so much because we would be so focused on God's gracious promises to us. Verse 7 tells us that we need to remember those that taught us about Christ and imitate their faith. All right, he's saying consider their conduct and imitate their faith. All right, there's two things I find interesting here. There's this, there's this um, they're tied, your faith and your conduct. Your confession and how you live are so linked together. But I want you to notice that he does not say, look at their conduct and do what they do. He says, look at their conduct and imitate their faith. We are to imitate their faith. So it's important that we go back to those that have taught us Christ and consider how they, how they live. And if you, if you have teachers that, that, that live no different than the world, you need to find better teachers. Um, but if you are blessed enough to have teachers, those that have brought you to Christ, those that have, you have, have poured themselves into you, if their conduct is worthy to imitate, you are blessed. You are blessed. And imitate their, your faith. Let your faith inform how you're going to live that you can do that to somebody else. So there is this glorious connection between faith conduct. So who is it that God's used in your life? Look past, honor those that have done that for you, and imitate their faith. And if you don't have anybody that you can really think of, I mean, listen, you have two guys here, I know. Joseph and Paul. I've seen both of them. Alright? But we also have this glorious treasure in biographies. We can read about men that have gone before us. We can learn from men like Spurgeon or Charles Whitfield or George Whitfield. We have these wonderful biographies. Take advantage of those. And then in verses 8 through 14, we're told to follow Christ no matter what else is taught or what is the cost. We remember that Jesus is God and does not change. The writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And our doctrine should be grounded upon this fact not by varied and strange teachings, not by what's popular out of Christian publishing right now. Uh, we let the Word of God inform us of our doctrine, and we are to be strengthened by grace, he says, strengthened by grace. Verses 10 and 11, we are reminded once again of Jesus' priestly role, how he sacrifices himself outside the camp. In verse 12, we are to follow him outside this gate, so he exhorts them to follow Jesus and to be with them outside the gate, outside the camp where it's dangerous, where he died for us. Now we may not be struggling ourselves with returning to Judaism, returning to temple worship, but each one of us has something that we are struggling with that, that's getting in the way of our soul following God, following him in obedience. So each one of you need to go outside the camp, outside the gate. You need to Follow Jesus no matter what. 
something's grappling with your heart. The author of Hebrews is saying, follow Christ, no matter what the cost is. No matter what anybody tells you, you follow Jesus. We remember that this is not our home. Cincinnati is not your home, so you cannot be afraid of making people mad. You're, you're searching for a heavenly city. So as you're here, you're faithful to Christ. You're faithful to Him. So in these 14 verses, the, the author of Hebrews is commanding us to live counterculturally. All right, society is telling us that the most important thing that we can do is to love ourselves. But the writer is telling us that we need to love the brethren. Society is telling us that certain people have no value. But the writer tells us that all people have value and we are to show hospitality to them, to visit prisoners. Our culture is diminishing the importance of marriage. But the writer here is saying that we must lift up marriage and the marriage bed must be undefiled. We now call greed ambition and we're exhorted to get all we can. But the writer is telling us to be free from the love of money and to be content. We are told that faith impacts our behavior by the writer. But the world tells us that we are to compartmentalize our lives. That we are to have our, our Sunday morning life over here, our work life over there, and our home life over here. The writer tells us that's not how it is. Our faith impacts our behavior. The writer is telling us to imitate Jesus by going outside the camp, outside from where it is safe and comfortable. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to an impossible life on our own. But the good news is it's not on our own. We need to remember what has already been written. Jesus is superior to everything. He is the great high priest. He has offered us a better sacrifice and a better temple and is mediating a better covenant. When we are in Christ, God fills us with his Holy Spirit, which empowers us for obedience. So no, we cannot do this on our own strength. We cannot walk in such a countercultural way on our own. So we cry out to God for help to live a life that is pleasing to him. And the good news is he has told us that he will do precisely that. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the goodness of God and start living like we belong to him. In Christ's church, if you want to impact this city, you must live a different way. You must love those around you, not like the world defines love, but as the Bible defines love. All right? And you will, you will have enemies if you do that. They will think you're crazy, they'll think you're mean, Again, this is not our home. We live for that heavenly city. So fear God and not man.